Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Wonderful to see you all today. Thank you, those of you who are joining us here. I'm also thankful for those of you watching online. Well, as you probably know, tomorrow is a holiday. Tomorrow is Valentine's Day, a day that often involves professions of love, gifts, dates, things like chocolate and flowers. It's supposed to be a celebration of love, but Sometimes, in the midst of all that celebration, some people, maybe even some of us, we use it as an opportunity to reflect. Perhaps we think about the past. Maybe we think about a previous relationship we were in, an old relationship, or or perhaps a relationship we wish we had, an opportunity that we wish we would have taken. And perhaps in our minds, often with rose-colored glasses, we look back on that and remember it as being better than it actually was. And we can do that same thing, that kind of looking back when it regards our own faith or our own expression of faith in God. We can look back and say, you know, before I started coming to church a lot, my life was a little better than it is now. Being a Christian is just really hard. You know, maybe back then, maybe things were better before. And if you've been following along with us as we're going through the book of Hebrews, that's exactly what this book is about. The author's writing a letter to Hebrew, Jewish background believers who were struggling because they were thinking about leaving Christianity to go back to Judaism. And the author's trying to tell them, no, you don't want to do that because Jesus is better. This was a hard struggle for them, though, because they, as Hebrew people, were part of a tight-knit community. And to follow Jesus, they probably had to leave that community. The people they knew well and grew up with, they left that. And we can understand perhaps how some of them may have thought, you know, I miss worshiping the way I grew up. I miss doing things the way I did all my life before. You know, maybe I should get back together with Judaism. And so that's what the title of the message is about. Jesus is better than your ex. That's the focus of Hebrews chapter 8 that we're looking at here. So I'm not talking about your ex-boyfriend, ex-girlfriend, spouse, or something like that. I'm saying Jesus is better than your old way of life. And even if you look back and think, you know, I miss some things about that. Jesus is better. This new life that we have in a relationship with Christ is one to hold on to. Yes, life is hard. Yes, we may have our doubts. But the passage we're looking at today, Hebrews chapter 8, will tell us that whatever way you may have tried to relate to God to in the past, whatever way you thought this brought me close to God, Jesus is a better way. It's a better one to believe in. And if you're here or perhaps watching and you don't know Jesus, well, I hope I'll be able to prove it to you from God's word that he's better. Verse 3 says, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests, there are already priests who offer gifts according to the law. Verse 5 tells us, though, that they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect that tent, he was instructed by God, who said, Say, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain." 
Well, the very first part of this passage is really helpful to us because the author tells us the main point about what he's trying to say, the review of the past few sermons, the main point is that Jesus is our high priest. He is our representative before God. And right now he is seated at the right hand of God, a place of honor. His work of salvation is done. It is finished. It is guaranteed. And what is he doing now? Well, he's ministering. He's serving in the holy places, the heavenly sanctuary. And our author is saying this is different than the old Hebrew faith. In the Old Testament, if you're not familiar, God's people worshiped at one particular place. When they were first given the law, how they were to understand this, they were told to worship at a tent, or they called it a tabernacle. And later they turned that tent into a permanent building, a temple. But in that tent, that tabernacle, that temple, the most important part was the inner part of that structure which was called the holy place or the most holy place. A couple of weeks ago, I showed this picture about a curtain that divided that. So above where that curtain is, that was the most holy place. It was where God's presence dwelt with his people on earth. And so our author is saying to them that Jesus is not in a tent right now. He's not in a tabernacle. He's not in a temple on earth. He is in heaven. And that is the real, true holy place. That earthly tent or or tabernacle, it was a picture of how people could enter God's presence. It was supposed to reflect, demonstrate a reality that is in heaven. And he says, we know this because the tent was set up by, by men, by humans, by regular people on earth, but God has set up this holy place in heaven. Scholar Al Mohler says that tabernacle on earth was real, But it wasn't the place where full salvation was won. Full salvation takes place in the true tabernacle in heaven. So he continues this. He says in in verse 3 that these high priests who were here, the ones on earth, they offered sacrifices. That's what they do. And Jesus did that as well, except he offered a sacrifice that was accepted in heaven, the true heavenly tabernacle. We'll read in chapter 9 that when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, so he was in heaven, not the one made in hands, not of this creation, Christ entered once for all into the holy places. He didn't get there by how that what they used in the Old Testament, the blood of goats and calves. He got there by his own blood, his own death. And that gives us an eternal redemption, an eternal redemption salvation. That's what Jesus does. In verse four, our author points out that Jesus couldn't even be a priest on earth. Under that Old Testament law and structure there, there was one tribe of God's people, one group, one clan of God's people that was supposed to do it, the tribe of Levi. And Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. As verse four says, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. It's the priests, they're already priests who offer those gifts according to the law. Jesus wasn't a priest or like a a pastor, religious leader per se. He was a layman, a regular person when he was on earth. And as I was researching this, someone pointed out that it's very interesting that when Jesus was on earth, he didn't try to go into that most holy place in the temple. He didn't try to walk right into God's presence there. He could, he was perfect holy, perfect, good, but he didn't try to do that because that wasn't his role then. 
He was not a priest on earth. However, he's not on earth right now. Now he is in heaven. He's a different kind of priest, a different kind of representative. And our author here is telling the people he's writing to and us, so we don't need those earthly priests anymore because Jesus has permanently done the work. And we know we don't need them because that tabernacle, that temple system, it was only a copy. It was an imitation, a shadow of the reality that is in heaven. Again, in verse five, he says, those priests, they serve a copy, a shadow of heavenly things. He points out when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God. God told them, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. That's a quote from the Old Testament, uh, specifically from the book of Exodus, chapter 25, verse 40. It's talking about Moses. He was a great leader of God's people. He's the one who first received God's law, gave it to his people. And when God was telling him how the people were to relate to him, God showed him something. He showed him a reality of worship in heaven and said, you are supposed to model what you do after that. You're supposed to build this tent, this tabernacle after that pattern that I revealed to you. The point is God designed it first. The real thing was in heaven, Moses just copied him. God had the patent, the very first one, and Moses just manufactured another copy. And so that real place of heavenly worship, that's where Jesus is. So it's not a shadow. It's not a dream in our heads. It's a reality. It's where he is. In chapter nine, we'll see that Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands that are copies of the true things. Christ has gone to heaven itself. He appears in the presence of God on our behalf. Now, this idea of something being a shadow of something, it, it got me thinking, and I, it reminded me of something. In my backyard, well, actually not my backyard, my neighbor's backyard, there is a big walnut tree. This isn't a picture of it, but just to illustrate it, there's a big walnut tree in my neighbor's yard. It, it, it's really big, and most days in the morning, particularly in the summer and fall, when the sun comes up, it comes up behind the tree, and so it cast a huge shadow over my backyard. In fact, that shadow can take up most of my backyard, even though it's from my neighbor's tree. It's a huge shadow. It covers so much, but it's not the tree itself. Now, I can look at that shadow, and I could look at its outline, and I could say, yeah, that, that kind of looks like a tree, but it's not the same thing. And that's what our author is trying to say. The way the Hebrew people worshiped in the Old Testament, that was a shadow of the reality. It wasn't the real way where God was leading his people toward. It dimly revealed God's glory that was fully revealed in Jesus Christ. A shadow can be impressive. Like I said, that shadow, that walnut tree, it, it covers a lot of my yard. It's very big. It takes a while for the sun to get up and that shadow to disappear. It can last a long time, that shadow. But it's not a substitute for the real thing. Our author isn't the only one to say this. Paul says it in Colossians. He says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Christ. 
He's saying those parts of the Old Testament law, they served a purpose, but we shouldn't focus on them to try to earn favor with God. That would be like focusing on a shadow instead of looking at the real thing. I'll talk about my neighbor's walnut tree again. Sometimes I come out in the morning and that huge shadow is over the yard and I look under the shadow and I see branches. During the fall, I see a whole bunch of walnuts all over my backyard. And it would be silly for me to go, wow, this shadow is producing branches and walnuts are popping out of the ground. Of course not. That's not where they're coming from. They're coming from the tree up above it. Even though it may look like they came from the shadow. I look at the evidence and I realize, oh, something else has happened here. They must have come from that tree. In the same way we'll see in Hebrews 10, since the Old Testament law is but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, then it can never, by same sacrifices that are offered continually, year after year, it can never make perfect those who draw near. Our author is saying that old faith you have, it wasn't enough. It was a shadow of the reality that's yours now in Jesus Christ. And so what that means is for the Hebrew people, their relationship with Jesus right now, our author says that is a better relationship. The relationship you have now is a better relationship. And there's at least two ways it's better. One he talks about is it's better because it is a new covenant, a new covenant. It's a better agreement. They get more out of this relationship. In the next part of this chapter, our author is explaining that Jesus' minister serves a new covenant, and he compares it to the old way, the old covenant. This is verses 6 and 7 of Hebrews 8. Say, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as now the covenant that he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Now a covenant just means a binding agreement. Particularly here, it means a way of relating to God. We don't really use that word. Like the closest comparison today would be like a a contract, a binding contract, but even then that's not fully conveying the reality. But in scripture, God makes these agreements. He makes these covenants with people and he does it to reveal more and more of who he is and what he is like to them. To show more and more of his grace. They see more and more of God like, wow, this is who God is. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Learn more about him. And he uses these covenants to help them grow closer to him. However, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll find that time and time again, God's people fail to keep up their end of the agreement. God says, here I am. This is what I've done. Here's what I'd like you to do. And they're unable to do it. It's a painful reminder for us that our sin, our rebellion, what we do, it pushes us away from God. It separates us from him. In every case, God is the offended party. We are the ones who broke the contract. And that's why we need a mediator. We need someone to be a middleman, a go-between, and that's who Jesus is. As it says in verse 6 about Jesus, he, the covenant he mediates is better. And so our author tells us Christ has obtained, he's received a ministry that is more excellent, that's superior 
to that old covenant. This new way is better. Jesus is superior to those Old Testament priests and their agreement with God. It's a better way of relating to God because it's enacted, established. It's based on better promises, which he'll quote in just a bit. We'll get there in just a minute. For right now, look at verse seven though. It says, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Now he's not saying the old covenant, the old Testament is wrong or bad. He's just saying it's weak. It's ineffective at bringing people into a right relationship with God. That Old Testament law is perfect. It reveals God's perfect character. But through it alone, people can't learn to be perfect. I could put the Ten Commandments in front of you, but I can't make you obey them. We read earlier in chapter 7 that on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness, uselessness, in the sense that the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, now in Christ, a better hope is introduced through which we're able to draw near to God. That old covenant, it was incomplete. It was provisional. It was not the end of God's plan. And so our author says a second new covenant was needed to replace and supersede it. And if there is a new one, it must be better than the old. It's better because promises are kept in this relationship. So the next point we see about fulfilled promises. And in these powerful verses, 8 8 through 12, this passage, we're going to read in a minute, but in many ways it contains the essence of Christianity. What's kind of ironic about that, though, is this is mostly a quote from the Old Testament. But it is the basics of our faith conveyed even in this Old Testament passage. It's a quote from the prophet Jeremiah, specifically, if you want to look it up, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And this is the longest quote of the Old Testament in the New Testament. It's an Old Testament prophecy that was written hundreds of years before the book we're looking at, Hebrews, was written. When the prophet Jeremiah spoke this, it was a great time of trial for God's people. The earthly kingdom of God's people was falling apart because of their sin and disobedience against God, and he was bringing judgment on that nation. Things were really bad. There was a great siege going on. Mothers were were eating their children because they had no other food. It was a terrible situation. All hope seemed lost. But in that moment, Jeremiah gave his people a message of hope. He said, God is going to do something one day that will set all of this right. And let's read that. This is now from Hebrews with that quote. Our author says, he, God, finds fault with them when he says, and here's the quote, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like that covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God 
and they shall be my people. Verse 11 says, they shall not teach each one his neighbor, each one his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. Our author is quoting this Old Testament passage to say to the Hebrew people, you and everyone else who practiced the Hebrew faith should have been looking for this. You should have been looking for a new covenant, a new agreement with God that was to come. This prophecy establishes why that new covenant was needed and why Jesus brought it about. It won't be like the old one because God's people will not fail to fulfill it. The author, particularly the quote Jeremiah, makes it very clear that it was the people's fault that it was broken. God brought his people out of slavery from Egypt. He brought them into freedom, but they failed to live for him. They did not continue following God. They were unfaithful to him. They chased after the things they wanted that they thought would make them happy. They worshiped other gods. And so God turned away. He let his people and their nation fall into judgment and exile. But Jeremiah says the new covenant won't be like that because it doesn't depend on our faithfulness. It depends on God's faithfulness. This new covenant is not based on our behavior, what we do. It's based on the person and work of Jesus Christ. One pastor, F.B. Meyer, talking about the verses we just read, 8 through 12, says there are no ifs. There are no injunctions of observe to do. There are no conditions of obedience to be fulfilled. From first to last, it consists of the I wills of the Most High. Read again, it's not God saying, if you do this, observe, you should do this. No, it's God saying, I will do this. I will do this. And what is it God does? Well, let's look again at verse 10. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. What does God do? He transforms their hearts and their minds of his people so that they know God personally. If we're sinning against God, rebelling against him, if our life is not characterized by knowing him, if we don't have a relationship with him, then we are his enemies. But through this new covenant, this new agreement, he makes himself known to us. I found this one verse interesting. Paul actually picks up on some of this language. He's writing to the church in Corinth. He's talking about how he can see God working in their lives. And this is what he tells them. You show you are a letter from Christ delivered by us. Because I look at your lives and they're not written with ink, but your lives are a letter written by the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. So as I look at your heart and your lives and I can see God has done something in you. I can see that God's Holy Spirit has changed your heart. He's changed you from being an enemy of God to having an intimate interest in him. This is something that God has to do in our lives. The Protestant reformer, John Calvin, he said, the word of God never penetrates into our hearts for they are iron and stone until they are softened by him. 
we couldn't do it on our own. When God saves us, he softens our heart so that we are able to hear, to receive his truth. So when our passage talks about God writing things on our mind or heart, he's not saying you need to memorize more scripture. Although, of course you should, that, that's helpful. But no, no, he's talking about how he puts his truth in our hearts. We deeply know God and who he is. Other places in the Old Testament talk about that. The book of Ezekiel, God says, I will give them one heart, a new spirit I will put within them. I'm going to remove the heart of stone from their flesh. I'm going to give them a heart of flesh. And then they will be able to walk in my statutes, to keep my rules and obey them. They shall be my people and I will be their God. This relationship with God is about who we are on the inside much more than about what we do on the outside. Not that it's unimportant what we do on the outside, but it has to start with transformation inside. Being a Christian, being changed by God is not just that you don't steal or you don't murder. No, it's more than that. It's God has changed your heart. So you look at other people and you see they are created in the image of God. And you don't want to harm them. You don't want to steal. You don't want to murder. It leads you not to sin against them. You don't feel a burden. Oh, I have to do what God says. No, you want to do what God says because you love him. F.B. Meyer, again, talking about a Christian, said he obeys because he loves to obey. We delight to do what God has said. Not out of sense of duty, I have to do what God says. Not out of fear, I'm afraid of what God will do to me if I don't do what's right. But out of love for the Lord. This new covenant is about the inside. It's about what, how what we think is more often more important than what we do. It's a transformation on the inside that then produces results. But that's not all. God also says, we go back to verse 10, he not only says he'll put laws in their minds, write them on their hearts, but he says, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This, this new covenant, this promise means that we belong to God. We are his people. And we have the privilege of knowing him. We can know God, not based on who our parents were, not based on our race, our family, or our background, but we can know God because he has chosen to love us. Through Jesus, he claims us as his own. He says, they are my people. It'd be like if I was going somewhere where I didn't really know people and I was there with, with my family, my wife and, and my daughter and I introduced myself to someone we were talking and they said, oh, and who is this next to you? And I said, that's my wife. That's my daughter. They, they are my family. They are with me. Well, for those of us who know God, it's like we're at that party with him and God says, oh, that person, he's mine. She's mine. They are my people. They're my son, my daughter. Verses 11 and 12 then continue these promises. It says, they shall not teach each one his neighbor, each one his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sin no more. Saying God does this work in our hearts. You don't need someone else to bring this work about in you. God does it. 
In 1 John, John talks about it as an anointing. It's the same thing, God's work in his people's lives. And he says, the anointing you received from him, from Christ, abides, remains in you. You've no need anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as he has taught you, abide, remain, rest in him. God has brought this about in your life, not someone else. Now, that or this doesn't mean that we should never listen to anyone else, that that God's going to do his thing. I don't have to listen to any any preacher or teacher. I don't have to learn anymore because God's just going to tell me what is right. it, It doesn't mean that. It's saying that if we're saved, if we know God, that's the work of Jesus Christ. Someone else didn't make that happen in us. He did. And the result of this, as verse 12 says, is that he will bring lasting forgiveness and mercy. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. We don't need to live in guilt. We don't need to live in despair over, oh, what have I done against God? We should grieve and mourn that, but we should not live in despair because Jesus has paid for that sin and he will not hold it against us. One scholar, Michael Kruger, said, God promises to completely forget our sins. Not because he doesn't care about sin, but because Jesus is enough to cover it. Jesus is enough to cover our sins. And so our iniquities, our sin, or your translation may have wickedness or wrongdoing, those things no longer enslave us. So the result of this is that if we are Christians, if we know God, then we are his people. His Holy Spirit has written his law, his word on our hearts, and we have been forgiven once and forever. I didn't put the verse up here, but when Jesus was on the cross, he said, it is finished. And it is so. So this new covenant, it's an inner relationship with God, his word on our hearts, the forgiveness of our sins. You may say, okay, pastor, but why is this important? Why are we spending time talking about this? Because this relationship, your personal relationship with God is the most important relationship in your life. The most, no qualification, the most important relationship. Yes, more important than a spouse or romance or something like that. This is more important. In fact, the Bible says that marriage is actually just a picture, a shadow of our relationship with God. In the book of Ephesians, we read a quote from the Old Testament, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. And Paul says, this mystery is profound. I'm saying that this, that marriage, refers to the relationship between Christ and the church. Greater than the most loving husband, that's how God loves and pursues us. And he asks for nothing in return. He graciously extends to us love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. This is the message of God's word. This is the message that we proclaim. We can have this intimate relationship with God. You can know God and be forgiven from everything that came before, from all your sins. So let me ask you, are you here? Do you have that relationship? Do you know Jesus in that way, that closeness that you know that he has brought you out of sin? Have you turned away from sin, said, I'm done with that, and God, I want you 
if you haven't turned from sin, believed in Christ, I, I pray that you would do so and talk to someone about how you can know Jesus. Because the application for all of us to take home today is what does all this mean? Why are we talking about all of this? Well, the point the author wants us to bring home is that we should not settle for a temporary shadow, temporary relationship. Don't have this note. We shouldn't settle for a fling. Instead, have a real relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't settle for a temporary shadow. Have a real relationship with Jesus. And I'll put that up again if you didn't get it. In verse 13, the author says, in speaking of this new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Our author says that old covenant, it's obsolete, it's growing old, it's about to vanish and disappear. Now, to be clear, that doesn't mean we should throw out the first half of our Bibles. We shouldn't just chuck the Old Testament. It's extremely important. Jesus himself tells us that. He, Jesus said, do not think I've come to abolish the Old Testament law or prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He answers the questions the Old Testament asks. We saw earlier how the Old Testament gives a pattern of what worship in heaven looks like. We have much to learn from what the Old Testament can teach us. If you want more proof of that, if you're familiar with, with the church or you've read God's word, you may have heard this verse. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. A great verse about how God's word comes from him. We can rely on it. Something you might not think about very much though is this was Paul writing this. When he said all scripture, what he meant was the Old Testament. They didn't have the rest of it at that point that he's writing this. So when he says all scripture, put Old Testament there. All the Old Testament is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. That doesn't mean the New Testament isn't those things, but he's talking about the Old Testament. God used that old covenant, that old agreement with his people. He taught them about his character. He revealed to them, this is the way I would like my people to live for their benefit. He uses it to convict his people of sin to see, oh, I'm not living for God. And maybe most importantly, he used it to establish a pattern of sacrifice and death leading to forgiveness of sin. Our faith, our faith in Christ would not exist without the Old Testament, its law, its covenant. It was paving the way for Jesus Christ. God's people in the Old Testament, they looked ahead to a perfect ultimate sacrifice to come. And so as a short rabbit trail, that, that means there's no excuse for mistreating those who still try to worship by that covenant today, for mistreating those who are, are Jews or Hebrew people because they're people in need of a savior just like everyone else. Instead, we show love, grace, and share the good news of Jesus. But back here in verse 13, what's happening here? It's saying that that old covenant is obsolete. It's like someone aging, someone who's close to death. Now, obsolete is a harsh word now, but the point he's trying to make is that if someone is near death, they've had an amazing, important life, but their time is about to come. That's just what it means. It was important, extremely valuable. But in terms of how we relate to God, come to know him, it's time has come. 
That old operating system is out of date. The new update is here, and it's here to stay. Okay, but what does that really mean for us? I recognize that this book is written to a particular people that doesn't really describe our situation. I, I can look around here, but I doubt that there's someone here who's struggling with the temptation. I want to go and sacrifice animals like they did in the Old Testament. I don't think that's a temptation that we're wrestling with right now. But, but we are familiar with the temptation to maybe go back to our old way of life. Sometimes think, yeah, this is too hard. Maybe I want to go back to that. Or maybe we look at some things, some practices of those who do not know God, and we think, oh, that looks pretty interesting. If I wasn't a Christian, maybe that would be something I would do. And so we're tempted to leave for something we think might be, get, be better. In all these things, we, we have this temptation in us that we want our relationship with God to be based on something we do. There's some pride in us. I want to do something to make God happy with me. And it's so easy to slip into that mindset rather than resting in what Jesus has done for us. Let me give a silly example. As many of you know, I, I enjoy Star Wars and the, the Star Wars media that's around now are Star Wars television shows which have introduced this character known as the Mandalorian or his name is Din Djarin. And in the show where the, he is right now, he was part of a very traditional sect of these warriors called Mandalorians who had very specific rules, including you could never take off your helmet, among other things. And he thought that's what it meant to be a Mandalorian, was following these strict rules. But through his adventures throughout the show, he's met other people. And he's met other Mandalorians who don't follow those strict rules. And they're showing him, you can still be this type of warrior without following those strict rules that you grew up with. Well, I think that's, in a sense, that's what our author is saying to the Hebrew people. He's saying, I know you grew up with those sacrifices and you may miss them, you may long back on them, but it's not that they're dumb or old-fashioned. They've been fulfilled. Their purpose has been achieved. Jesus has died for your sin. You don't need those other sacrifices. So what's our application? Our application is despite the temptation, we shouldn't try to make our relationship with God about what we do. You, we should not view ourselves as good with God because you know what? I haven't cheated this week. I haven't lied. I haven't stolen anything. God and I are in a good place today. I, I haven't sworn recently. I'm good with God. That's not what a relationship's based on. We shouldn't take confidence in the fact, oh, I go to church every week. That means I'm good with God now. Or I give money to the church or to, to charity. That's how I know that God and I are in a good place. No, that's the way we thought things worked when we were with our religious ex, when we thought we had to earn this relationship with God. The Bible tells us that it's only through Jesus and through faith in him alone that we know God. And then we do what God says out of gratitude, not to try to earn favor with him. Let me make an example. I'm not quite at this point yet, but I know many of you have been there. If you've been a parent, or perhaps you're just an aunt or an uncle watching a child or, or a grandparent, if you tell your child, hey, could you pick up your toys? And the child does it, puts, all the way, puts away all the toys, and then runs up to you with a handout, says, give me some candy. I put away my toys, so you now give me some candy. That's the way this works. 
Well, then you would think, well, they're not really loving you. They're not really obeying you. They're doing what you said so that they can earn something and get something from you. But if you ask the child, hey, put, put away those toys, and they do it out of respect, out of love, that's a relationship based on love. That's the relationship God has with us. He doesn't want us to do things and then be like, okay, God, give it here. Give me, give me. No, no. He wants us to love him, to respond to God. I'm so grateful for you. Of course I'll do this thing you asked. And it's not that he's mean to us. He looks out for our interest. So let me be clear. There are a lot of great benefits of being a Christian. I could talk about them to you. I could try to sell you on the benefits of being a Christian. You can pray to God. You can have help when you need it. You can come to church, meet all these wonderful people here. And if you're a Christian, you get heaven when you die. There are a lot of great benefits here. But if you're in it for just those things, or you want to be in it just for those things, then you won't find it satisfying. Because it's not about those benefits. It's about a relationship with Jesus. A way to kind of test this, I I don't have this here, but... um, This isn't from me. I've heard someone else say this. But if you could go to heaven and God wasn't there, would that make you happy? And that's convicting for us. We think, I could be at a place that's, that's, that's good and I don't have any trouble or any sadness. That sounds pretty good. But that's not what it's about. It's about a relationship with God. And so if you're not focused on those things, but you are in love with Jesus, if he is your true valentine, oh, then you'll find the good news of God, the greatest, most joyful news in the world. Because the relationship with Jesus is not a shadow. It is the real thing. He is that true soulmate that you have been looking for. Now, if you know Christ, know him for a while, sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we doubt that. But it's true. He is a better relationship. Because he's based on a new covenant, a new agreement with us that has fulfilled the promises of God's word. That is a relationship worth holding on to. So friends, why don't we renew our love for him now together through worship and song? Because he is worthy and he has done that for us.